Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the book The Hannibal Square Heritage Collection, Photographs and Oral Histories, documents the culture of the African-American community in West Winter Park. It's much more diverse now than it used to be, but it's still predominantly African-American. There are still over a dozen churches there, and there's just a lot of great people there with a lot of rich history, and especially older people who uh, carry that history with them. We'll discuss a French account of a Spanish colonial-era voyage to Florida and the New World. Now, the story begins in early uh, 1666 with the 18-year-old narrator boarding a Spanish merchant ship on his way to the New World. Uh, and he writes uh, against his parents' best wishes. He knew that he had to go. It was his destiny to explore these new lands. And we'll talk about an exhibit at the University of South Florida looking at the Johns Committee. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Hannibal Square Heritage Collection, Photographs and Oral Histories is a new book documenting the people and culture of West Winter Park. Peter Schreier is project director and photo editor for the book. He's also executive director of the Crealde School of Art and founder of the Hannibal Square Heritage Center. As Schreier explains, Hannibal Square is the historically African-American community adjacent to the affluent town of Winter Park. Well, if you're familiar with Winter Park, you're probably familiar with the downtown area, Park Avenue, Central Park, and and if you've been there recently, you see the new train station where Sunrail stops. If you just go about another four blocks west after crossing the railroad track, you will be in the heart and soul of Hannibal Square. It's a traditional African-American community. Uh, it's been there as long as the city has has, has been there for over 125 years. And of course, until uh, desegregation, it was a very, very, very separate part of town. Uh, there were curfew laws. There were, there were, there were, uh, you know, on the law that uh, West Side residents, as it often is referred to, also uh, were not allowed to cross the tracks after dark. And, and, and when they did, they had to have permission because they worked for a white family or worked at a hotel or something like that. So for very much of, of Winter Park's history, uh, these two parts of Winter Park were very, very separate. And of course, that's not the case anymore. Today, there has been a lot of redevelopment in Hannibal Square or what also sometimes is called the west side of Winter Park. But there's still a very, very vibrant traditional community there. It's much more diverse now than it used to be, but it's still predominantly African-American. 
There are still over a dozen churches there, and there's just a lot of great people there with a lot of rich history, and especially older people who uh, carry that history with them. While Hannibal Square remains predominantly African-American, the neighborhood has experienced gentrification in recent decades. Until desegregation came, the actual intersection of New England and Pennsylvania, which is really Hannibal Square itself, but also the whole neighborhood is often referred to it that way. It was really the heart of the black business community. I mean, this is where there were, there were shops there, there were a couple of restaurants there, there was a pool hall there and so forth, because the people in the neighborhood, that's the only place where they're really allowed to go. So in the 1970s and 80s, that started changing, and some of these businesses went out of business, and the neighborhood got a little bit dilapidated in the commercial buildings because just, there just wasn't the, the business anymore they used to have. And uh, with that came uh, some negative elements of crime and so, and so forth. So it made it really ripe for redevelopment. And unfortunately, not only did it make it ripe for redevelopment, but kind of ripe for redevelopment that wasn't always really softly and gently and respectfully looking at the history and the heritage was there. And that's a lot of what's now referred to as gentrification, where gradually sort of the Park Avenue feel of Winter Park just crept over all the way into Hannibal Square. And that's pretty much complete now, where you have one string of upscale shops and restaurants from Park Avenue to Hannibal Square. And, uh, and then behind that, you have the traditional community, the neighborhood, the churches and so forth, you know. So for the Heritage Center and the fact that it is there, this is both good and bad. It, it's good that it brings a lot of people, including visitors from all over the country, to come there because they can come there, see our little museum, they can go have a nice meal and so, and so forth. And for traditional community and their families that come visit on holidays and so forth, it's an opportunity to do the same, to do the same thing. Sadly, of course, is so when you look at our historic photographs, how many wonderful places and buildings have been lost, you know, that, that used to be there. But we, we also hope that the center place, you know, it's there for a reason where it is, because it really is sort of at the dividing point between the old and new. And sometimes people refer to as sort of a, a guard or, or a beacon, you know, that, that shows what was there before, but also to help preserve what was there today of the traditional community. Peter Schreier initiated a project of collecting both photographs and oral histories in the Hannibal Square neighborhood to document and preserve the traditional culture of the community. That project led to the creation of the Hannibal Square Heritage Center. It actually goes back all the way to 2002 when uh, Creolde wrote a successful grant to the Community Foundation, which was called at the time, and we put a team together uh, with an anthropologist, Dr. Ron Haben, Fairling Livingston, who is a community historian, and the photography department at Creolde, and we started collecting historical photographs of the Hannibal Square community. Uh, with the commitment, we would not take a single historic photographs out of the hands of any of the residents. So we would copy them, we would listen to their story, we would interview them, and we would do a contemporary portrait of what the person looks like the day the interview was made. Uh, I saw a similar project being done uh, a few years before in California by the 
Los Angeles County Library in a much larger, more extensive way where they actually documented with historical photographs virtually every single neighborhood of their gigantic city. What they did not do is add the contemporary element, so we added that to it by doing a portrait. So when you look at the finished pieces in the collection, you get to not only hear the story and see the photograph, what the story is about, but you also get to see the face of the person that's sharing the story. So initially, this was just going to be an exhibit that Corralde was organizing, and it was put up at the Winter Park Community Center. And it was so well received, and so many people came to see it. And then eventually people say, well, I have pictures too I'd love to contribute. So we did a second phase and a third phase. And then one of these incredibly wonderful things happened is that nobody had to start it, and nobody even knows how it got started. But all of a sudden, people in the neighborhood and people at the city and people at Corral, they were talking about the collection needs a permanent home. And it started basically a three-year political process, which was quite interesting. It was wonderful at times and incredibly frustrating at other times. Changed a lot of hearts in a really positive way. And uh, where the community, together with Grealde, petitioned the city to build a heritage center. When I say community, I really say community in, in, a, in a larger sense because uh, there were people, of course, from the community who wanted it more than anyone but there were also people from the other side of Winter Park. There were professors and administrators from Rollins and from other area museums. We had a lot of good people that came out over and over again and petitioned the city to do it. And uh, happy to say that in the spring of 2007, it's opened its doors. It's uh, open five days a week. We have art classes there for young and old. Uh, yeah, that's what Corral always has done, you know, in addition to the permanent collection. We have traveling exhibitions that come there. We have a filter program for children. And we have tourists, visitors from all over the country, and sometimes even abroad, that stop by uh, and are getting a wonderful lesson, you know, history told by the people who've lived it. The Hannibal Square Heritage Collection contains historic photographs from the original Neighborhood Documentary Project and more recent images taken by Peter Schreier. The team of docents that we work with at the Heritage Center determined that there were some histories and important, valuable stories by certain families that we were not capturing because those families had no pictures to share. And so we put together a project where we would go and not only interview the people who had these valuable stories, who were all elderly people in their 80s and 90s and a couple over 100, but we'd also do a nice contemporary environmental portrait of them. And I had the privilege to, to be the photographer. And uh, we approached each person by, like, help us select a place that you would love to be photographed in, a place that you love, that you're comfortable with. So for some people, it was their living room. Some people, it was the home of their daughter. With some people, it was their church. With some people, it was a street corner. And with someone else, it used to be where they worked for many, many decades. And then uh, Farallon, uh, Livingston, and Mary Daniels, uh, they did the interviews. And we put the whole piece together. And Full Sail students did it, the video that we show at the center, you know, show how the whole thing was put together. And it's only three years ago, and it's, it's sad to say that several people have already passed away that they're in this project and 
And it is not that we already didn't know it, but I think it's telling every last person the urgency of, of doing this kind of work because when we lose those people, unfortunately, a lot of times we lose their stories because their kids and kids don't necessarily live in Hannibal Square. And sadly enough, sometimes people also think that their story is not important, you know, where it is, you know. The photographs and oral histories that make up the Hannibal Square Heritage Collection book tell dozens of personal stories. Together, those stories tell the history of a community that is quickly disappearing. There's so many. There's, uh, there's the, the people walking to church, you know, all dressed up on, on Easter with, with the children. There is the, the dad proudly showing off his, his baby girl in the back garden of the house and and you can see the chicken coop in the background, something really don't see anymore. And there's the family uh, in front of the family car, but there's also the pictures of work. There's the chauffeur that's posing with his 1924 Buick. He's, he's driving for, uh, for his employer. And uh, we even have a, a, a portrait of the man who used to be employed as the flagman on Fairbanks Avenue, where thousands of cars drive by today. And there was a time where uh, that was someone's job to basically knowing when the train would come and hear this, this, the horn and then get out in the street with the flags and stop the traffic, you know. So these are, these are great lessons to, to be told to young people and wonderful stories for older people to reconnect who actually were there and lived through it. We spoke with Peter Schreier, executive director for the Crealdi School of Art and founder of the Hannibal Square Heritage Center. He's also project director and photo editor of the new book, The Hannibal Square Heritage Collection, Photographs and Oral Histories. How do we make sense of these memories, photographs and history? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers is now available in multimedia formats. If you enjoy us on the radio, you can also find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org or listen on your mobile device through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find our Florida Frontiers blog at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Don't miss our television series, Florida Frontiers. We're on public television stations from Key West to the Panhandle. Check your local PBS schedule for airtimes. You can watch archived episodes of the series at myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, you have here documentation of a Spanish colonial voyage to Florida and the New World. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at today is a two-volume set entitled Voyage de Francois Corial, and this is a translation into French of a trip to North and South America and actually parts of the Greater and Lesser Antilles uh, by a gentleman named Francisco Corial, a Spaniard originally from Cartagena, Spain. And it covers a period from about 1666 to 1697. So over 30 years, the author traveled throughout the New World, North and South America. And what we're looking at today is purported to be the first French translation of that account. And it was published in Paris in 1722. Uh, And it's a small volume. Uh, Each book is only about six inches long by about four inches wide. And you can see there are parts that are actually handwritten in. And this is the first edition. It's in its original binding. It's actually in fairly good condition. It was donated to the Florida Historical Society back in the 1940s, and we've had it in our collection ever since. Uh, Now, the story begins in early uh, 1666 with the 18-year-old narrator boarding a Spanish merchant ship on his way to the New World. Uh, And he writes uh, against his parents' best wishes. He knew that he had to go. It was his destiny to explore these new lands. Uh, Within a few weeks, they've already sailed out of the Mediterranean and they're into the Atlantic. He covers briefly the Atlantic crossing and then describes his arrival on some of the Caribbean islands of the the greater Antilles. Then he makes his way to Florida. And that's where we're we're actually going to look at now. I'll flip the book open to uh, the second chapter. And it says here in 1669, I arrived in La Floride. Uh, And he describes some of the physical features of Florida, the fact that it's a long peninsula that juts down into the Caribbean, and then spends the next probably two-thirds of the chapter on Florida describing the native peoples. And the narrative goes into a lot of great detail, talking about the type of dress that they were wearing, the uh, red beads and necklaces that some of the native peoples were adorning. Uh, He also talks about instances of cannibalism and violence and mentions a few early Spanish explorers who had ventured to Florida before this time period and talks about their significance in the in the historiography, I guess, of early exploration to the New World. Now, this sounds like a fascinating voyage, but there's a, a problem with this account, right? Yeah, that's right. There's, there's one small problem, and that's the fact that most historians concede that uh, this account never actually happened, and there really uh, was no Francisco Correal. In fact, whoever the author was, writing under the pseudonym of uh, Francois de Correal, created uh, largely a apocryphal account of this expedition to North and South America. And in fact, when you read through the account, you can actually compare it to earlier 16th century expeditions to Florida in particular. Uh, in fact, if you you look at René de Laudonniere's account in, in Jean Ribot, uh, some of these early French explorers, you can actually pick out uh, parts of their narrative and, and compare it uh, directly to uh, the account that we're looking at today. Now, the second volume helps to support the claim this expedition probably never took place uh, because it's just a rehashing of the expeditions of uh, Sir Walter Raleigh uh, and Ferdinand Magellan and some of these other famous explorers in the 16th and early 17th centuries who actually did make these expeditions. Now, this uh, this author, we, of course, know very little about, but, uh, but we can tell, again, just by comparing it to some of these earlier narratives that it was entirely made up. Now, even though this is a fake account, does it have historical significance? 
Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, one might automatically just dismiss this account as being uh, a fake, and it really uh, isn't important to our understanding of, of Florida, but it, it really is. When we look at Florida history, especially in the early colonial period, uh, works like this that were being produced and printed uh, back in the old world in, in France and Spain and England really drove how Europeans perceived not only native peoples, but the new world in general. Uh, so these accounts were perpetuating a lot of myths and misbeliefs about what the new world was was really like. Um, so yes, there there is a, um, a certain amount of, of importance that we can place on these early works. They are certainly part of the broader historiography of, of Florida history, and we have to take these into account. Again, even though uh, it's based on an expedition that never occurred and it is a, the narrator is someone who probably didn't even exist, uh, we, we can still use this account and, and place it into the historiography and better understand uh, this early colonial period in Florida's history. Interesting. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at a new exhibition at the University of South Florida that explores the activities of the Johns Committee. I spoke with Andrew Hughes, a librarian at the University of South Florida. We talked about the Johns Committee and a new digital exhibit at the USF Library. Here he tells me about what the Johns Committee was. The Florida Legislative Investigation Committee was uh, a committee that was uh, it was um, created by the Florida Legislature, largely as um, kind of a a backlash against the civil rights movement, against um, the kind of drift of power away from the counties and into Florida cities. There's a lot of different ways that you could look at it, but basically, um, Brown versus the Board of Education was probably you know the biggest provocation for it, and then. Um, so around 1957, it was formed and first really uh, focused on African-American groups trying to get the vote out, etc. And then eventually started to shift into the universities and looking for communists and homosexuals, which were pretty much considered interchangeable. Uh, if you were communist, then you, you probably had homosexual tendencies and vice versa. At least that's what the thought was at the time. Here I learned the place USF has in the history of the Johns Committee. The Johns Committee visited all the major universities here in, in the, the state of Florida, and USF had just been created by the state of Florida and had just opened in the fall of 1960. So it was a very vulnerable institution. We didn't have a lot of you know alumni to, to stick up for us, certainly didn't have any alumni in the legislature. And uh, a lot of the legislator were, you know, they came out of UF and uh, for a lot of different reasons were, were hostile to, towards USF, especially being the first 
urban university, you know, built right into a kind of a metropolitan area. And what's interesting is that a lot of their a lot of their fears were, you know, came true in the sense that uh, the university, the students wouldn't tolerate a segregated restaurant down the street, USF basically opened as an integrated university. So, you know, students were going out and, and picketing and things like this and doing all kinds of things that would have been unthinkable just a few years before the city of Tampa. So, you know, to a certain extent, I think this fear of this liberal urban university um, was, uh, was well-placed. The Johns Committee had to confront an idealistic president at the University of Central Florida. John Allen, the, the first president of the university, really bent over backwards to get a, an idealistic faculty, faculty who were all interested in starting something new. Um, so they all felt like they were participating in something special. And then, you know, 1960, late 61, 62, the Johns Committee starts coming in and asking all these questions and, and doing it as an investigation in such a way that this is not the way legal investigations were typically done, you know, in an open democratic society. Um, you know, their methods were definitely unsound from a legal point of view. Andrew Hughes tells me here what kinds of things are on exhibit in the digital collection. Well, we've got a, a bunch of different collections, and that's what I've been doing is kind of inventorying the items in all the different collections. So we've got the, the John Edgerton papers. He was the press secretary for USF. So he did a lot of correspondence, especially with newspaper editors. A lot of newspaper editors felt the same way as educators about the, the Johns Committee in that they saw it in a negative light. And we've got John Allen's papers, the first president. Uh, we've got the papers of Sumter Lowry, who was really an arch-conservative segregationist. Um, so we get to see a lot of it from his point of view as well. He was one of the main instigators of the Johns Committee getting involved in investigating USF in the first place. And then, you know, there's a lot of other really revealing things. Like there was a claim by an employee who said he hurt his back. And he lived in Stark, where uh, where Charlie Johns uh, was a representative. And Charlie Johns personally, you know, vowed to get involved in this case because John Allen was breaking people and didn't care about humanity and all this stuff. So it really had a personal aspect to it. It wasn't just business or professional, you know, type of thing. The digital collection is called The Witch Hunt at USF, Experiencing the Johns Committee Through Primary Resources. It's housed at the University of South Florida's library on a digital webpage. You can search for it on the internet. That was Andrew Hughes, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, you can find great books on Florida history and culture, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and find out about exciting upcoming events like our annual meeting and symposium. That's myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Thank you.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.